Welcome to the message podcast for Church of the Nazarene. We invite you to subscribe for updates and new episodes. You can also search for our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. Make sure you join us each Sunday at 9 a.m. on Facebook Live. Our in-person service times are 9 and 10.30 a.m. We have a campus near Harrisonburg at 1871 Boyers Road and a new campus in East Rockingham at 414 Southeast Side Highway in Elkton. In addition, at our Harrisonburg campus, we have a Spanish campus that meets on Sundays at 11.45 a.m. Check out our website, cotnaz.org, for more information. As we dive in today, have you ever been taught not to ask certain questions? Like as a young boy, you're always taught don't ever ask a woman how old she is, right? Off limits, and even as you're an older guy, you just don't ask that question, right? There's some questions that are just off limits that we just don't ask. And, uh, but there are some questions that are good for us to ask one another and good to consider. And I'm really a person that loves asking questions. And I'm sure my wife has an expression on her face right now. I don't even need to look. But I love to find out more information, to dive a little deeper. And questions really have a way of expanding our thinking and pressing us in different directions and making us think maybe in even new thought patterns. But some questions are hard, aren't they? We come across some that are pretty easy and very uh, good to go along with, but there are questions in life that are hard. They have deep implications. We may not have settled feelings about the answers, about the implications of those questions. Friends, as a family of believers today in Christ Jesus, we can't shy away from the hard questions. We can't allow those feelings to keep us from answering the hard things from diving in and seeing what Scripture might have to say. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to dive into some hard questions together. Uh, So if you're visiting with us, this is a new series that we're starting, and we are just looking, just trying to dive in and ask a couple hard questions over the next three weeks. So I welcome you today to our series, Burning Questions. We began this series actually last summer in our Harrisonburg campus, and we dove into a couple hard topics, and we felt like it was a good thing, a good practice for us to do because we grow together as we journey through these difficult topics, as these difficult questions come about. And we can't shy away from a lot of these hard questions because the world around us is asking the very same questions. So today's question is one that many of your friends or your family may be asking, or maybe even you yourself this morning are asking this question. Today's question that we're launching the series with is, would a loving God really send someone to hell? Would a loving God really send someone to hell? Have you ever had anyone ask you that question before? Are you asking that question this morning? Is that something that churns within your heart? Our world is certainly wrestling with this question. You can look around and see a rise in universalism, or you can see a rise in this idea that all roads lead to heaven, that there's a a Unitarian view that anything and everything goes, we're all going to end up in heaven. Our world is answering this question, is responding to this question. And even some of that response today is that there's just an outright rejection of an idea of hell or much less a God that would potentially send someone there. 
Have you ever wrestled with this question? The world around us is, and it's okay if we do too. But today we're going to dive in and try to see what's behind this question. What, what's in our hearts? What does Scripture say? So how do we do it? As we begin to unpack this question together, can we just for a moment acknowledge the task before us? We didn't pick an easy question to start the series with. Can we just acknowledge for a moment that honestly, this question brings feelings for us? The very thought of hell is repulsive to us, isn't it? The torture, the the gnashing of the teeth, we don't like the way that makes us feel. We can't stand this topic and the way it makes us feel because if it's true, if hell really is a real place and people really do go there, if it's true, we're faced with the agonizing reality that we know people that are experiencing that reality right now. The question of hell is not a far removed conversation or topic or doctrine to any of us. It's close, it's personal, it's real. We have to acknowledge those feelings because often, friends, those feelings that we have that are very natural and and very understandable, it's so hard for us to wrap our minds around that. But we have to be cautious because as we allow ourselves into those feelings, we begin to think things like, I would never do that. That's not just. That's not loving of God. We start to say what we would or would not do, or we start to put forth our idea of justice and love and mercy. We start to put those things forth. And what we have to be so careful of is that when we do that, we begin to put God under our subjection, don't we? We come to the Scriptures, we come to Him, and we say, no, you can't operate that way because I wouldn't. It's pretty easy to get into that to find ourselves into saying, well, God can't possibly be that way because I wouldn't be. But what we're really doing when we do that, friends, is we're really putting God under our subjection, and that's just not how it works. As much as we might like it sometimes in our self-sovereignty, it's just not how it works. We're in an effect saying that we're right, our ways are right, and God's are wrong. And we know as a faithful body of believers that we need to come humbly before him and come to his word and his scripture to find out what he says. So how do we do it? How do we handle the things of God we just don't understand? How can we approach this question question with openness and honesty before God and before ourselves, before our peers, our family? I would propose first we begin with prayer. We begin asking God to reveal himself, to reveal his heart, to reveal the truth to us. And friends, that's what we're going to do right now in the service. We're going to pray. So would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, um, we come before you today and we want to be open to you, Lord. We don't want to put our ideas of right and wrong onto you, our ideas of justice. Lord, we want to receive from you today, Lord Jesus, love mercy, justice. We want to hear your truth, to know your heart, Lord God. Lord, that we might have an answer when our heart questions these things or when our peers or our family has these questions, God, that we would know your heart. Reveal yourself today to us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.
Next, friends, I would propose that we need to humble ourselves. We need to allow room for God to do what God does, to reveal his nature, his character, his truth to us. Psalm 25 verse 9 says this. He says, he, speaking of God, God guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. There are many times we're approaching scripture with our right answers to see if the Bible lines up, right? We have our own thoughts and we come to this book to see if it lines up with what we think. That's pride. There I say that's a little bit arrogant of us. And so to begin, we, we must come in humility, submitting ourselves to the word and the truth of the Lord. Next, I think we need to make room for the possibilities of God's nature and his goodness. If you read in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9, it says this. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We must make room for the possibility, no, the reality, that God's ways are far and above beyond what we can understand. We don't always know what we want, do we? We'll sometimes say we want justice. We're for justice. We're a justice-oriented culture until we're going 75 and a 55 and the blue lights come up behind us. We're no longer justice people. We're grace people, aren't we? Because nobody rolls down the window for the officer and says, please give me all the justice you got in that book. No, we're coming with every excuse we possibly can of why we should receive grace. So our own thoughts, our own ideas are not reliable. Because when the pressure's on, we'll shift in a moment. So we have to make room for God's possibilities. So here's a question. Is it possible? Is it possible today, friends, that God's love, that God's love is so much holier, so much more pure, so much more righteous that we can't even comprehend it? Is it possible? Is it possible? Can we make room for that in our hearts today? that God's ways and his thoughts are as far above and beyond and better and truer than mine that I can't even comprehend it. Is it possible? Friends, I think the cross is the ultimate illustration of this point that I'm trying to make today. Jesus was the innocent one, right? Scripture tells us that he loved, he gave, he sacrificed, he was the sinless lamb of God. And yet what did he do? He took on the weight of our sin. He bore the crime, the penalty that we couldn't pay, that we might be free. Our sense of justice looks at the cross and says, that's not fair. But God's love says, yes, I will do this. The cross is the ultimate illustration that our ways are not God's ways. None of us would do what God did in the cross of Christ. None of us. So we have to make room for that possibility. So we must approach the hard questions, friends, with humility, open minds, allowing and asking and desiring that God would reveal himself 
to us. So, would a loving God really send someone to hell? As we approach the scriptures, we're shown time and time again a God of immense love who is rich in mercy, a God who is righteous, a God who is holy and true, a God of justice. God is shown as gracious and true. He's shown as merciful, but yet shown as just. And sometimes we can have a tension in that area, can't we? Because we sometimes struggle to hold the tension between justice and mercy. But that tension is nowhere in Scripture for God. He seems to hold both perfectly in nature. We can sometimes view the Old Testament with some of the hard passages that we find there, and we can kind of fall into this trap of we look at the Old Testament and go, that was then, that was just God then, but we come into the New Testament and we say, oh, look, look at gracious and merciful Jesus. Because it would seem that there's two totally different natures going on there, but it is in fact one, one true God. One story is told across the Scriptures and as we come to Jesus' teaching, we, we will see that he talked an awful lot about hell and final judgment. So God, Jesus, revealed in the scriptures to us, was very caring and compassionate, feeding the masses and ministering to the downcast and the outsiders, but yet he was very just. He did not shy away from warning people of the judgment to come. You find several of these warnings. We're going to talk about five of them here just briefly. Matthew 10, 28 says this, says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 23, says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Matthew 25, 41 says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Luke 13, 28, he says, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be thrown out. Luke 16, 23, in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. In Jesus, we see a God of great compassion ministering to all those that he came in contact with. And that ministry continues today, friends. God is still calling the outcast. He is still beckoning you in to receive him as Lord and Savior of your life. But Jesus did not shy away from the reality of what lay ahead for the unrepentant. The word Gehenna, which is translated for hell, appears 13 times in the New Testament. Twelve of them were from the lips of Jesus. Twelve of the 13. In fact, Jesus talked more about upcoming hell and judgment to come than he did about heaven. Some 70 times in the New Testament he makes reference to this end. There's a profound story told in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, if you would turn with me in your copy of Scripture today. This is Jesus speaking, telling a story. Beginning in verse 19, he says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Verse 25, but Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Verse 27, he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, then they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. At its very core, this message is a message of warning. It's a warning for me, and it's a warning for you today too. A warning of what is ahead of judgment and the consequences for the unrepentant. When we start to unpack the details of this story, which we'll have to save for another time, but as we begin to unpack even the highlights, we see that the rich man in the story had it all going for him. In this culture, in this time, for it to be clothed in purple would have been the Gucci suit of his day, right? It was the $1,000 suit that he was wearing because purple was a super rare dye, and the wording there of even what the fabric was was rare and conveyed the idea of wealth and prosperity, he had it all going for him. He had a gate to his home, so that tells us that it was kind of a nice pad. He had that going for him. So in the world's eyes, he was blessed by God. He had it all going on. His reference to Father Abraham even indicates that likely he was familiar with religious practices. But the rich man who had it all failed to live out the call of God on his life. The call of God that says we are to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The rich man failed to meet even the most basic need that was at his doorstep. He rejected God's calling. He rejected God's presence in the story. He rejected the calling to live a life of love, a life of surrender to the ways and the word of God. And in that rejection, he determined his destiny. The message was a warning to a crowd of religious leaders, a mixed crowd in that day that was acting and living the very same way. This was a warning to change now, to live different now, to avoid the consequence of unrepentance ahead, to live out the call of God while we have opportunity. For Jesus, God's justice and his righteousness were not in question, only the people's response to it. There's another truth that we see within this passage. We see within this passage that God doesn't send people to hell. People choose hell by rejecting God, by rejecting the call to receive him, by rejecting the call to make Jesus Lord of their life. 
Do you know that hell is really the utter absence of God's presence? That's what hell is. The complete void of God's presence. So think about the implications of that for just a moment. Within hell, there's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no love. There's no kindness. There's no joy. There's no peace, no patience. No happiness ever. Imagine that for just a moment. We can sometimes feel like we're living in hell here on earth, but yet we can't comprehend the torment and the agony of being totally removed from God's presence because God's common grace is all around us every day in the sunrise and the sunset in the air that we breathe. Just imagine a world for a moment without even that. In the book of James, it's written that every good and perfect gift is from God. So if we remove God's presence, every good and perfect thing we enjoy will not be there because hell is a place void of God's presence. So friendships, relationships, food, water, music, art, air, beauty are void because God's presence is not there. And as we read in Scripture, that's what the authors were trying to convey when they talked about the flames and the gnashing of teeth. They couldn't come up with word pictures gross enough, harsh enough, bad enough to describe what it'll be like without God's presence. The Bible uses metaphoric language all the time. We talk all the time about Jesus being the Lamb of God. That does not mean He has four feet and a woolly coat. It's imagery. We don't know today, friends, whether the flames of hell are literal or not. Honestly, it doesn't matter. It's going to be so bad because God's presence is not there. Whether the flames are literal or not is not the issue. It's void of God's presence. That's what matters. What's truly alarming is that when you're in writing imagery, sometimes the reality is worse than the imagery you can come up with. That's true of hell. It's worse than they can come up with. So what happens in the life of a person that rejects Christ? Millions of opportunities of grace reaching out to every person. We believe, and you read in John 3.16, God doesn't want anyone to perish. Every time you're on 81 and you pass those three crosses on the hill, that's grace. That's grace calling people home. So you live a life, you reject, you say, no, I don't want your presence in my life, God. I will not surrender. I do not want to live now under your rule, in your presence. I don't want to experience your joy, your hope, the peace. I don't want that. Leave me alone. God allows us to do that. When we live that life and we come to die, God says to us, thy will be done. Thy will be done. You desired your whole life to live without my presence. Thy will be done. That's what happens. Hell is truly 
God's final nod to our free will. He will allow us to choose that. He will allow us to choose an eternal destiny apart from his presence. So would a loving God really send someone to hell? Yes, hell is a reality. With all of its pain, all of its tears, and all of its torment. Sadly, people will choose to go there. But we must embrace God as he is revealed in the scriptures. Despite what we may feel, despite what our ideas of justice and mercy might say, for us to turn our backs on God in this area is to forsake his character, his true nature. We cannot afford to get this wrong. We cannot afford to get this wrong. What we think about eternity How we view what's to come after we draw our final breath will affect every moment of how we live today. It's that important. There's another question that must be asked. Let's watch this video clip. Put your backs into it. Pull! 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 Come on! Pull! Pull! will pull us down if we don't keep going. We've lots more room. I say we go back. No! It's our lives now, not ours. And I'm in charge of this boat, madam. Now row! This is the captain! Come back to the ship! Well, I won't wear one, sir. It'll just slow me down, impede my stroke. Right you are, Mr. Macaulay. It is 700 miles to shore, so you wouldn't want to do anything to impede your stroke. Another important question we must ask today. In light of the truth that we have unpacked just briefly, 
And, and I, I wish we could take an hour and a half to unpack and get into the nuance of the text, and I wish we could do that. But in the time we've had today and the truth we've been revealed in Scripture, another question must be asked. What will we do about it? What will you do about it? Will you go back? Will you go back? There's plenty of room in the lifeboat of Christ. Will we be known as the people that go back? As much as Jesus spoke about hell and judgment, and as important as it was to him, it should be important to us. Any conversation with hell must be treated with the utmost care and compassion. We're not out to win an argument. In fact, if we feel like we've won an argument in this area, we've probably lost it. The reality of hell and what's to come as it's revealed in Scripture should cause every one of our hearts to be burdened. To feel sorrow that hell won't be empty. Compassion should well up within us. It should give us a deep sense of urgency about the gospel truth that we carry in our hearts. To share that message with others. To consecrate our whole lives. You might say, I'm, I'm just a carpenter. I'm just a landscaper. I'm just a you name it. I retired 10 years ago. Will you consecrate your whole life, every aspect, to see the glory of God spread? We should be eager to give Jesus our all and to be on his team. As the band begins to make their way forward, this should not only motivate us to reach others, to reach out. We too should hear the warnings of Jesus in this area. One of the most profound warnings in Scripture, and this Scripture personally haunts me more than many others. It was not given to the outcast, the prostitute, the drunkard. It was given to the religious folks, the church people. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21, Jesus speaking, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Don't miss this. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That should cause us a moment's pause today, friends. Because the people that Jesus was talking about were the church people. They had seen miracles. They had been a part of what God was doing. They had been a part of a great VBS. They had done all these things. They had given their tithe faithfully, but yet somehow there was a way that they missed it. Friends, we need to hear the warning of Jesus in Scripture today for ourselves too. Ask the question, Lord, do you know me? Do you know me? Friends, 
There's really two invitations today, and we're just going to go forward in an attitude of prayer. So whatever posture you want to take, if you want to kneel at your chair, if you want to stand, if you want to go to the back, whatever you need to do today to get in that space where you can talk to God. Because I can't help you here. I can show you, and we can talk through the text, but you must come before the King of kings and Lord of lords. There's two invitations. The first, if you're here today and you know that you have never invited the Lord Jesus into your life as Lord, as Savior, to save you from your sins, to save you from yourself, If you want to experience His presence in your life today, will you invite Him? With every head bowed and every eye closed, friend, if that's you today, don't miss this opportunity. And I'm not trying to scare you because honestly, friends, the fear of hell is not enough to keep you saved very long. Because we'll forget, we'll get lax, it seems too far away. But the invitation is to have God's presence, the creator of the universe living inside of you. That peace, that joy, that comfort, the knowing that all is well between you and the creator God. That's what it's about. It's not just about skipping hell. It's about living life now the way we're called to live. If you want that life today, will you just raise your hand? Will you just raise your hand and say, yes, Lord. I want to know you and I want you to know me. I see those hands. The second invitation today is for us church folks. It's for me, it's for you, it's for all of us. That we would allow the reality of eternity to motivate us every day of our lives to live different. To live in urgency. To consecrate our every, every single aspect of our lives. Our finances, our time, our treasures, our possessions, everything. Our retirement our college tuition, whatever it is. The invitation today is to give it all to Jesus. To surrender that place you've been holding on to. That fear, that shame, that anxiety, whatever that place is for you, that one area in your life where you know the Holy Spirit's pressing down and just saying, what's in that closet you won't let me in, friend? Open the door today. We don't want to miss this. We can't afford to get it wrong because the world is watching. They're watching our lives. Would you pray with me today? Lord Jesus, we bow before your word today. God, if maybe that's the place where we need to start today is just to say that your ways are not my ways. And maybe, Lord, allow you to transform how we engage Scripture. Lord, point out those places in our hearts and in our lives where we're telling you how you should do it. I know, Lord, I do that to you. I know I do. 
Show me where. Show me those places, Lord. Father, I pray that we would live in your presence now. Lord, that we could take part in heaven now because we're living in your presence, Lord. Oh God, may we have a reverent respect and fear of eternity without you, God. We don't have to fear. We don't have to wonder about our salvation because we're in Christ Jesus. But Lord, may we never forget. May we never forget. God, we need your forgiveness. We need your grace. We need your mercy. Yes, Lord, we need your justice. We don't understand the love like the cross. We don't understand why the perfect one should go for those of us who are far from perfect. But Lord, we receive you today. Christ Jesus the King. Lord, rule over our lives, every corner, every aspect, every area, God. Be Lord of all. Be Lord of all. It's in your precious and most holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening today. You can email us at info at cotnaz.org for any questions about our church. When you're done listening, please subscribe to this channel for the latest updates and new episodes.